Hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of Talking Feds. A historic episode, I would say. Not that we, in our little podcast, are making history, but we surely are living through it. And the indictment uh, dropped by Jack Smith and returned by a grand jury yesterday accusing the former president of a series of crimes growing out of January 6th is for, by most people's estimates, uh, setting up the most important criminal prosecution in the history of the country. And of course, uh, redounds in huge explosive ways, both politically and legally. So we have two of talking feds and the country stalwart commentators who have uh, taken time off from their very busy uh, commentating schedules on TV. You know them well to just work through this indictment and give sort of more nuanced, sophisticated, back and forth uh, observations than we're able to get in the four minute uh, sound bites on television. Uh, so we feel really uh, lucky to do a deep dive with Jen Rubin of the Washington Post. Hello, Jen. Hi. And Ambassador Norm Eisen for title only. Somehow that's on your bio, Norm. I'm not sure why. Uh, a uh, uh, stalwart in uh, so many ways and a CNN commentator, Jen, a MSNBC commentator, Welcome to you both, and let's dive in. Um, I'll start here. Um, we were waiting, we were waiting, we were waiting. It looked like it was going to happen. It really looked like it was going to happen. It happened. And we jumped in, all of us together, with you know both feet. Um, now we've had a few hours to digest. Any big or medium surprises to uh, for either of you to the indictment it wasn't a surprise but it was a pleasant uh appearance if you will and that is the way that jack smith handled the speech on the ellipse as mm. all three of us have commented in various forum and various media there's an issue. Would that be fora uh, or forums? Fora, I know, but fora. Can we get a, can we get a call forum. on that, please? Okay. All right. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Fora right. sounds so, you know. Yeah, it really does. I'm going with forums. I'm going with forums. All right. Okay. Go ahead. All right. There you go. Um, the question of whether his speech on the ellipse, which he really incites, I'm using that word in the colloquial sense, incites the crowd to go up to the Capitol and promises that he is going to be there. The difficulty with making that as a central fact or a central charge in the indictment is that it raises certain First Amendment issues. Um, the famous Brenberg um, case, which basically says it really has to get through a very difficult test of imminence and of call to action. And you get into a whole back and forth and potentially appeals, potentially, um, you know, complications. And moreover, it gives rise to Trump's kind of popular argument that he's being punished for what he said, that this is, you know, trying to shut him and his uh, supporters down. The way Smith kind of leapt around this 
was simply mentioning it sort of in passing. What this case is about is about the nonviolent manipulation of the Justice Department, of uh, the uh, electors at the state level, and an attempted manipulation of the vice president. So whether or not he made that speech, I don't want to say is irrelevant, but it's of limited relevance. And what is important about January 6th, as the indictment says, is Trump's opportunistic use of the violence. He does not accuse him of inciting the violence that is being responsible. That would have led to potentially a seditious conspiracy charge. He simply says he took advantage of it. And then he cites that famous 224 tweet um, that kind of revved up the crowd against um, Pence and his failure really to do anything for all those hours. So that was not necessarily a surprise, but it was a sense of relief and a lawyer's appreciation for the skill with which he put together a concise, persuasive uh, charge, four charges actually, without mucking up his case with this potential complication of the First Amendment. That was my medium-sized surprise. I have a comment on that, but Norm, let me, what, you're, here you are. Um, hello. Uh, so let's start with you, and then maybe we can go back more. Did you have any uh, surprises when you, when you jumped into the indictment yesterday at 530? Um, I, I did. Um, let me say that um, the, um, that the I have my little list I made for TV. Harry, when you were doing <laughs> when you were doing the introductions, uh, you uh, aptly noted that this represents a summit of the MSNBC and CNN. <laughs> exactly, and, and I'm the bridge. I'm the marriage between and, them both. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and you do both. So there you are. Here we are. Um, All right. Uh, I, I I listed the um, I listed the, this as the missing insurrection charge. Um, as you know, in our model prosecution memo that I did with a bipartisan cast of luminaries, we did a long analysis of how Jack Smith could charge. Uh, probably not seditious conspiracy because uh, technical elements, but at, at a minimum, giving aid and comfort to the insurrectionists under 18 U.S.C. 2383. Um, but I, I just want to second what Jen said. The way he had to tell the denouement, the violence, I mean, you can't avoid it. But he did it with such a deft touch and that the notion that Trump exploited it and embracing Trump's First Amendment rights and expressly disclaiming right up front, no, I'm not charging him for his speech. I'm not charging him for the ellipse. That was a brilliant missing piece and a masterstroke. Um, two others that uh, that that I thought were very interesting were the dog, like in Sherlock Holmes, the dog that didn't, that didn't bark in the night. Mark Meadows. Where is Mark Meadows? Other than passing references as Trump's chief of staff. Um, one of the things I love about coming on 
with you is that I can be a little more speculative than I feel comfortable in doing on air and helping analyze the news. Um, I think that um, Meadows, very capable, former senior DOJ official and now white collar defense lawyer, George Terwilliger, ran. He did not walk Mark Meadows into DOJ. He ran him into DOJ. And the absence of Meadows from the, because Meadows was so implicated, he should be, you know, co-conspirator number one. He really, right, right. he's the, the number two culpable. The yeah. total absence. So that was, I don't know if you say a surprise. We wrote in the Prost memo that we expected it. Um, but um, you, uh, but that's a sure sign of Meadows' cooperation. I think Meadows, if he was the first in, and if he fully cooperated, uh, probably can get away with just a cooperation deal here with no plea. We'll talk about this. If so, Terwilliger is lawyer of the year. Lawyer of the year. Uh, but, but he right. ran. He ran. I get, and you know these dummies like Harvey Silverglade, who I've done cases with, who's a very good defense lawyer in Boston, who's one of Eastman's lawyers today, proclaiming John Eastman will under no circumstances. Uh, cooperate or plead he will if he is charged he will fight uh you know uh uh nebuch as we say in jewish uh you know just moronic um so the other surprises are um the third surprise is the mysterious co-conspirator number six who is it and there are all these clues i think it is most likely Boris Epstein, so that if if that is the murderer's row that you have of Giuliani, Chesbro, Clark, Powell, um, Epstein, um, and um, Eastman, of course, if those are the six, I, I think there's a little bit like they plucked those six. It's a little different from the January 6th committee referral. It's close to what we recommended in the model process memo, we certainly talked about all of them. It's a little bit of a bigger list of co-conspirators. On that list, the two big surprises, though, are number six, if it is Epstein. The other candidate, the other plausible candidate is Mike Roman, who coordinated the um, fake and elector seems plot. To be the evidence it, lines is he? up. Yeah, yeah. The evidence lines up a little better for Epstein because yeah. Roman was, it says consultant. Epstein is described as a strategic right. consultant, strategic right. advisor to the campaign. Um, you know, so those are my, those are my right. excessively right. long list and of surprises. Go ahead, Norm. Just to follow on Norm, what was also surprising was that he used the technique of the unindicted co-conspirators. He did not charge them. He kept this case about Trump only about Trump. But by listing the co-conspirators, first of all, he... I think he calls them co-conspirators, not unindicted co-conspirators. Co right? It's co a kind of a, a new no, they nomenclature. They might be indicted yeah. someplace. They might be indicted yeah. and sealed. We don't know, right. although we think we would find out about that. So on one hand, he keeps them, um, keeps their conduct front and center. Second, he potentially... Um, holds out if he hasn't already the possibility of indicting him third this is kind of the last chance going at a business sale for making a deal so because otherwise true. you're yeah. gonna be coming in 
And the fourth is an issue that we were just discussing offline, which is for the lawyers on this list, and there are at least five of them, depending upon who number six is, that at issue is going to be Trump's claim that he was acting on advice of counsel and therefore gets a free pass. And by making them co-conspirators, Smith sets up, and this is a little complicated, an exclusion to the advice of counsel defense that says you can't take the advice of the of counsel when your counsel is conspiring with you to make a crime. That would be ridiculous. And you know, you're basically in a crime mob and one You of the could like, always escape liability ability. by it's having exactly. a lawyer as a And and not just, just an just exclusion. Think- not just an extra, an inclusion of all their statements, which come Correct. in uh, automatically. Right. I, 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 yeah, they are co-conspirators. Okay, quick comments on both of these, and then my own teeny surprise. Um, Epstein, first of all, which is the Agatha Christie uh, mystery in which it turns out that everybody did it. They come in one after the I mean, exactly. Epstein has so many enemies. They would, everyone would love to plunge the knife in there. Um, but as to yours, Jen, I just think, look, obviously, we we plunged into it and and looked at this scrap and that, but the product overall was very, very, very carefully wordsmith, and nothing of that, no more so than the beginning, and it's just so adroit, those first few paragraphs. First, paragraph one, Donald Trump was president, he lost the 2020 election. You know, done, forget about this, this is a fact, and let's go on. And then from there, setting up, just as you say, because it's going to be, you know, um, a lot of provocation, incitement, etc. But laying out first and foremost, no First Amendment issue, of course you can do Setting out a whole paragraph, I think paragraph three or whatever, um, yes. is, is um, you know, trying to do away with. It, it is a product that shows very, very careful consideration to what uh, Trump is going and, and the defense is going to be offering. My teeny surprise is just uh, a tribute to... Um, uh, Norm and uh, everyone, the the distinguished group that worked on that um, Pross memo that people can now, um, uh, you know, re-review. Basically, all the way through, I was saying, oh, you know, we get these little snippets, these little pebbles, but but Smith has a whole mountain. It turned out not really. There, the 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 thing that really struck me is, with a couple exceptions, one thing with Panska, everything that was in there we knew, and in retrospect, maybe it makes sense because everyone's remarked on Smith's alacrity in putting this together, and and he had a product, right? He had, and I don't mean with great respect, our your Prost memo, he had January six, and he took it and put it together. So notwithstanding all the people who have been in the uh, grand jury, and of course, he doesn't have to put everything in the indictment, we'll still find some new things. What struck me was, um, you know, it was all in plain sight, and he assembled it in a certain way. And the way he assembled it, I'll just make this final point, 
was um, uh, a very much a kind of um, morality tale of truth and lying. So and the reason the, we had um, the the. Uh, indictment is so striking. Do a little search for fraud or like every single thing again and again and again. So it, it establishes there's what there's a lot of things about him. He's a he's a bully. He's uh, uh, ruthless. He does, you know. But what really comes through is and it's arguably his great legacy. You know, he wakes up lying and lies all day and that's what really comes through in the indictment as an overall portrait. And the reason we have all those facts, and this is the biggest kind of takeaway I had, thank God for the January 6th committee. Thank God for they the January 6th committee. They put together the roadmap and he turned that into a legal indictment of clarity and of purpose. Everything that they did, putting together, they had a seven-point conspiracy scheme. He has more like a three. Everything was there. They That's a big, that, that, that less is more in trial practice. Yes. And that, that was, so big. Jen, as, as both of you know, because we talked about it a ton, that was one of the biggest things that we argued in that model process memo. Yes, the basics have been there. Jen, I'm cutting in. I'll, cut, I'll drop back out in a second. Yes, the basic factual liniments. Did we know that Mike Pence kept detailed notes? Did we know that, um, you know, uh, one of the uh, 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 a lawyer co-conspirators, uh, when presented with violence, said that's what the Insurrection Act is for? There's some little... There's a long list of places where there's a little bit of color. But the key thing Jack Smith did was to boil it down. And he he has a case he can present to a jury. This is what we call for in the memo. Not that it's rocket scientists. If you presented it to 100 trial lawyers, they would all basically come to the same conclusion. How do you get from seven to three to one? The one being one defendant. Yeah. So this is streamlined. And the art was from going from January 6th where reportedly Cassidy Hutchison testimony really jump-started the DOJ investigation. How do you go from seven to three to one? That's the art of the deal. And Tim Heafy was on CNN Air after the indictment dropped, the lead investigator, one of them, for the uh, uh, January 6th committee saying, look, the basic building blocks are are what we unearthed. But you know what's interesting? Of course, everybody's going to take credit just like I'm doing for the model process memo. You know, what's interesting is that the uh, a lot of this was also in the public record, like the Clark letter that they make so much of. A lot of it was in the public record pretty quickly as a result of Senate investigations that started, the first impeachment, uh, material that was furiously leaked, um, yeah, and, media uh, also, know, media also, yeah. Good reporting. If you good go reporting. back, if you go back, we will find that a lot of the basic information was in the public record even before the January 6th committee began. In fact, the first edition of the model prosecution memo was done by Barb McQuaid well before they began laying out the basic contours. And my first edition, building on Barb's work of what became our 250-page tome, uh, was released before the January 6th committee began their first hearing, right. saying these are the crimes and here's why. Right. What the January 6th committee, I think, did brilliantly is 
three things. One, they put it together in a narrative fashion in the same way, different facts, different rules of evidence, that a prosecutor would have to present to a jury. They, in essence, showed how you make this into a narrative that an ordinary person can consume, can understand, can follow, that makes sense. So there, I hate to use the word, but here it's completely appropriate. Their narrative that they put together and the way they presented it to the public, I think was a perfect um, entree for Jack Smith to and his team of people to say, yes, we can do this in a way that's understandable, that's manageable, that's feasible. Second thing they did was that they surfaced, as Norm said, all of these Republicans who were witnesses to the crime or participants to the crime. Virtually every witness that came forward was a Republican. There were state Republicans, there were federal Republicans, there were Justice Department Republicans. And so he, the, the committee brought forth, now maybe the prosecutor would have found all of these people, maybe they would have eventually found Cassidy Hutchinson, maybe they eventually would have found all these people, but they surfaced all these people and made it clear not only to Justice Department, but to the public that the case could be made coming from the mouths of Republicans, that this is not a bunch of Democrats making wild accusations, this comes from their own lips. And I think the third part of this that, you know, makes um, a lot of sense considering just last week, was it? Seems like a year ago, that the uh, <laughs> prosecutor in Michigan indicted the phony electors is that this is the flip side of what we're going to get in Georgia, of what we got in Michigan, and what we might expect to get in Arizona because Smith is talking about the phony elector scheme from the top down, meaning what Trump and his minions did to organize all these people to um, come up with these documents, to create these slates, to send them in. And the state prosecutors can then go after the people who were the carriers of the um, scheme, who put their names on these documents that were plainly fraudulent and sent them in. So we have. Yeah, essence, let me let me interrupt for a second, Jimmy. The, I think the coordination overlap with state stuff is going to be huge. But we're honored now to be joined by Renato Mariotti, who is a real lawyer and has uh, clients before and after, but is going to join us for a few minutes. So, Renato, thanks for being here. And we've so far just uh, been talking about what the biggest surprise was in the indictment. So let me serve that one up to you if you had anything. And then I want to, I want to try to take um, maximum advantage of your 15 minutes. What do, you, what do we have with you? 15 minutes of fame? So uh, did, did, did you have any surprises uh, as you tore into the document last evening? Yeah, I think, look, one surprise on the front end, uh, Harry, is that he decided that he was going to do a Trump-only case. I understand yes. that a lot of people suggested that that might be a possibility, and but it was interesting because what I, I think what we saw in the prior uh, superseder was him going, the superseding indictment, we, we saw him going in a different direction. He's like, you know what, I'm going to add another defendant even though that could slow things down. I don't care. I want the strongest possible case. I'm not going to race to the finish line. But here, I think he deliberately made a decision. He could have charged at least one of those, those people. I'm not going to charge anyone else. I'm going to have the leanest possible case. I'm going to try to go to trial quickly. I thought it was a very interesting and savvy 
uh, decision on his part because it means that you know he understands that the judge he gets in DC is very going to be very different than Aileen Cannon. Yeah, and he and he got that. Oh, and, and, and don't and you and think this did. is now he in the pole position the... for what's likely to go first? Yeah, I, th I think that's uh, well. The only uh, caveat is Manhattan, but I think the Manhattan right, right. DA said that he's, you know he's, he's willing to defer. Right, and he got the anti-cannon. Um, like you know, we talk about uh, anti-aircraft weapons. Judge Tanya Chutkin is the is an anti-cannon weapon. <laughs> She's the opposite of cannon in every way. She is fast, whereas cannon shilly shallies. Um, she, oh, that's a good um, one. Shilly shallies, nice one, Norm. Yeah. Uh, she um, has a proven uh, familiarity yeah. with the issues in this case from having handled very briskly uh, the Trump v. Thompson, the dispute with the January 6th committee where Trump tried all of his usual delay and presidential defenses. She brushed it aside. She brushed it aside fast. She was upheld by the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court. Um, she's a very experienced trial lawyer herself. So she cuts. She was the a senior litigator and then a supervisor at our public defender service, DCPDS, which is the crown jewel of national public defenders, um, um, the um, Harvard of public defenders services. If I may, uh, wow. say so. Oh, all right, the Yale. All right, the Yale. So I'm going to keep this going. To, yeah. To, yeah. To keep to get to get Renato's thoughts, but I well, one point you made in passing, it's not just her DC Circuit as opposed to Eleventh Circuit. They are used to dealing with him with dispatch, and if if there's you know uh, things that that he tries to um, bring up to the appellate level, they may do very quick work with it. Renato, sticking with you while we have you, what do you see from the um, indictment and the few comments we've had this morning are as the likely defenses and you know we again contrasting on this on this theme of speed which is huge we had built in uh even before our judge can in the classified uh, in, uh documents issue that's just going to be a, a big time suck um, but much less here. What do you think uh, Trump even has to try to, merit, meritorious or not, to try to delay things uh, in terms of uh, defense motions? Yeah, so definitely, okay, motions versus defenses to trial, I would say yeah. very different. So the motions, there's all sorts of motions I expect, I mean, I think that they might consider. Um, one is just you know, they may argue that there, there should, this is really multiple conspiracies, not one conspiracy, and so it's mischarged in some way. I don't think that'll necessarily be successful, but why not make the argument if you're trying to, you know, create some delay? I could see that being one issue they're going to raise. I think that they're going to, you know, argue, um, for example, that some of the actions were him exercising his lawful authority as president. Um, or were protected by the First Amendment or some other constitutional provision. So I expect there to be some sorts of constitutional arguments uh, that are being uh, that are made as well. Um, you know, potentially some other argument about how they've charged the the statute, particularly the Civil Rights Act of 1866. They're going to have they're going to say that that it's there that it's being misinterpreted by Jack Smith. 
all of that, in my view, is it really serves two purposes as somebody who does this uh, sometimes, uh, you know, is a criminal defense attorney. You know, you you tell you make these motions. Yeah, I mean, there's you could argue there's a delay element to it here. I'm sure that is a substantial part of their purpose. But there's also a telling the judge a story, you know, making sure the judge understands that there's something to this case that's not going to really get him very far with this judge. So I think it's mostly going to be about delay. Um, but I think that when but it comes don't to you trial, agree? There's and there's not much here. Story Shmori. I don't I don't see right now a lot of time uh, that these pretrial motions take up, and and that's what I am focusing on delay now rather than the defenses at trial. I think that, I, yeah, I think that's yeah. fair. I mean, I think th yeah, he doesn't have a right. Unlike the the Florida case, he doesn't have a right to yeah. an interlocutory appeal on anything. So I think, you know, and I think there'll be some discovery motions and so on as well, claiming he needs all sorts of information he doesn't have. There'll be a lot of that, but ultimately it's going to be decided by her. And if she wants to move quickly, she can't. Uh, I mean, I, that doesn't mean she will, but she certainly can. And she has the ability to do so if she wants to. I think it, trials can be very different. You know, trial defenses are yeah. going to be. I didn't know, or I, I thought this was legitimate. I thought that I had a really great legitimate arguments. I thought that I was the winner. I really believed it. Obviously, that's why Smith took that on in the indictment. I think there's going to be what I'll call a quasi-advice of counsel defense, not a real advice of counsel defense, but one where it's like you throw it around there, and it's like, hey, we had lawyers all around, and all these supposedly co-conspirators are lawyers, and so I, most of them are lawyers, so I was relying on their amazing advice. Well, and sort of how, does this, how does he present it? Seriously, how 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 is it uh, presented to the court or jury? That's an interesting thing. I mean, I think somebody like Giuliani, like, is in like don't give an f mode. You know, he's just sort of like he. I don't know if he. he, he I don't know if he's not thinking about how much time he has to live or doesn't think he has much time to live, but he just does not care about the downsides. So I think Giuliani will be very happy to just sort of waltz in there and just say whatever he wants. You know, whatever comes to mind. Uh, in that moment. Uh, and he's sort of freewheeling. That's my sense of this guy. I've been on set with him before. Like, where he just seems like he's making it up as he goes along. Um, I think that's why Jack Smith and his team spend some time talking to him so they can kind of, you know, uh, understand what he's going to say and, you know, cross examine him and so on. Good luck with that. All right. Let yeah. me um, uh, raise. Well, I'm sorry, Jen. Go ahead, please. By the way, can you imagine anything more dangerous for the defense than having Rudy Giuliani on this on the stand? Because and this is implicit in what Renato said. One, the guy who's not going to present it is Donald Trump. So, right. But I'm sorry, go, Jen. No, uh, oh, you yeah, know these yeah. these witnesses that he's going to come up with, whether it's uh, him and the other people, are certainly not going to go in there. I don't think John Eastman is going to take the stand in this because no. he's facing you know potential. He took the stand in his. In yeah. his disbarment case, as you know, I was one of the lawyers who filed Forget the about it. with the yeah, California Bar full disclosure. Stand here. Um, I so think he will. Harvey Silver Glate, who I know I've worked with, Renato, have you ever defended a case? Or Harry, have you ever worked uh, with Harvey? <laughs> you, you could say worked with. I had an incident as a young prosecutor where uh, oh the God, entire defense bar of San Francisco yeah. was arrayed against me, including Harvey Silverglade. But uh, okay. here, we'll have a little Harvey marker will. here. I'll say he won't take the stand, but go ahead. All yeah. right. You, I'll I'll cover you in the right. pool, um, the yeah. non-betting pool. Harvey right. will put Eastman on the stand to explain why what he did was reasonable 
uh, and to justify it. They did it in the disbarment Hey, he's case. not in the I case, though. Be. I mean, but go ahead. I mean, it's not yes, his fault. Well, we're assuming, yes, if he gets charged. The question is if he gets charged. But he's he not He's not going to get charged as part of this case. Back to Renato's point. Speed, speed, speed. That's the most important part of this indictment is the caption, I think. I U.S. Agree. versus Donald Trump. And uh, plus yeah. with the little, ch yeah. So, you know, the, he'll have his own, his day is coming for sure. Um, let me ask, while we still have Renato, we were all waiting on the surprise statute 241, and you've, you've referred to it as with possible um, risk here. In a very pellucid uh, indictment, I was left a little bit unclear about just what they're doing with 241. Yeah, it's got to do with votes, etc. But if they prove every fact in that indictment, what do they say at closing argument to show that Trump has violated 241? It seems sort of vague and cross-cutting. Um, any, any thoughts about the, the theory they're propounding with the, uh, the, the 241? Yeah, I had a similar reaction, Harry, and I guess my reaction to it is that's a problem for prosecutors when a bunch of smart lawyers get together and can't 100% figure out what you're yeah. trying to say. That seems to me like there's going to be, you know, and they're going to ask for a bill of particulars or they're going to make some other motion regarding that. I, I also will just say I one experience that I had that really had an impact in my life is I did. I was the first person to charge a particular statute. And that was very challenging to do some I, more that even though I had all the evidence yeah. in the world to to throw at this guy, just, you know, no one had ever done it. There was no jury instructions. There was no precedent. Um, you had to really figure it out. And I think here, I don't think we've seen anything quite like this before. And so I just think it has its own challenges and litigation risk, part of which I can't I haven't even had an opportunity or don't have enough information to consider because I don't even completely understand what he's trying to do with that. You know, I I looked at it a little differently. Um, I think he's keeping his options open, if you will. There are kind of three circles of people who might be the ones who were denied the right to have their votes counted accurately. The closest circle would be the original electors themselves who cast their ballots. And now these other people are coming along and saying, you know, you don't get to cast your ballots. So that's one group. The next group out would be the voters of the states, those seven states that were um, uh, affected by his scheme. Their votes were potentially going to be canceled out, if you will. You could either look upon it as the state as the whole or the Biden voters of that state. And the third is, in essence, the 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden to have their votes canceled. Now, does he at this stage have to specify which group he's talking about? Maybe, maybe not. Um, and maybe in the closing. Well, he needs to make a closing argument, right? Maybe he makes the, the argument for any one of them. I'm not sure that is a charging matter. He has to, and again, this goes to your point, Ron, who knows what the jury instructions are, whether he has to specify who the people are that were deprived. But I would imagine in closing argument, he would identify each of those groups of people because each of those groups of people were harmed. Yeah, I But mean, you look, want I'm to talk very... about a prospect for a Mc, you know, Bob McDonald case three years down the line, the Supreme Court reverses uh, conviction because it's, you know, this theory is the amorphous thing that could cover all kinds of 
political conduct. I think this is a perilous. He, he'll figure it out, I'm sure, and, and they've got good people thinking about this. But this one, I think, is fraught with... I, I've played the role before in prosecution of being the nerd who's trying to tell the trial lawyers, don't go for that, you'll get hurt on appeal. And they like, shut up, and we'll, that'll be your problem later. But this is the thing that strikes me as potential for appellate um, or, um, you know, exposure. If you Can you imagine the disaster there? We do this and then three years down the line, the Supreme Court reverses. Norm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, but Harry, it's, it's a belt and suspenders um, and uh, another belt. Because Not on appeal it isn't. If any of those just... three... Uh, uh, Appurtenances have constitutional problems. It'll wash you... out. It'll wash out. It'll wash right. out before then if if it does. But right. what he's done is, what he's done is, he's charged um, uh, three alternative theories. I'm not as dubious, by the way, about the 271, Renato. Unlike your experience, uh, it, it's um, it's a very commonly charged statute. So there are jury instructions. Yes, the sure. fact pattern here is unusual. But what Trump was conspiring to do, maybe I, I drunk my own Kool-Aid because I written, wrote about 271 as an elegant way to bring in the um, consequences of the conspiracies and particularly the interference with the meeting of Congress. Trump was trying to steal the rights of 81 million Americans who voted for Biden sure. by staying on. So I, I, I just, yeah. I'm not as skeptical about it. There are jury instructions. There's a big body of case law. Um, there's cases we can rely upon going back to the 19th century. And it's not like that. It's unusual facts, but it's not legally novel. Well, not not in this context. What I would just say is, whenever you're trying to take, what you, I mean, it's not an entirely new statute like I was trying to do at the back in the day, but it, it's it's new. It's a new application of it, and I just do see that being some litigation risk. I think my bigger issue million. is, yeah, right. I, I think that that what you said, Harry, I, I pretty much agree with your comments. I am the I'm usually the trial lawyer type trying to convince the uh, nerds uh, to let's <laughs> go and do aggressive things. I'm hyper aggressive yeah. lawyer. Uh, myself. But um, one thing I would just say is, you know, it really does concern me that you don't, you're not spelling out exactly what you're trying to do. In other words, even if it's maybe a new, a new way of doing things, I, I think that's one area and I'm not a big, I'm not very sympathetic to anything Trump and his team are trying to do, but that would be one legitimate defense argument is like, Hey, I'm trying to prepare for trial. I don't even know what this means. And I think there's going to be if if he doesn't spell that out over time, there's going to be motion practice on that because they I think it's fair for them to at least want to know what Jack Smith is trying to do with that count. All right, this is a little premature, but keeping with especially having Renato's uh, with your trial experience, what are we thinking? The you know he streamlines it, but it's a sprawling kind of fact pattern. How long? is the uh, case in chief. Who do we have? Matt, uh, we do have Meadows, as a, I think, clearly taking the stand. Pence clearly taking the stand. Cassie Hutchinson taking the stand. Who are sort of the main uh, witnesses? Can he do this in three weeks? 
Uh, you know, is it six weeks? What are the fan? Any any thoughts about the sort of nuts and bolts of the trial when the trial happens? All right, before I go, because my another client is waiting yeah. for me. I know uh, that's, before, that's why I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before I go, what I would say is I I think it, I'm very big on being very concise and right. focused in my trials. One problem with this case is that it requires a lot of context to understand a lot of this stuff. Who's this Clark guy and this letter and what's going on there, right? What's up with this pressure campaign against Pence? You know, there's all these different pieces of it. And the January 6th committee did, I think, a masterful job of explaining all of that, but it required context. It required a bunch of different hearings. I think it will be a challenge um, to simplify this and condense it down into a few weeks, but that's what he has to do. That is the challenge of trying this case is to take all of the sprawling stuff and, and really try to package that in a few weeks. The January 6th committee, in my view, gave him a great roadmap in doing that. Renata, thanks for being here. See you soon. See ya. All right, so back to the happy trio. Go ahead, Jen. Yeah. Yeah, you know who a great witness is going to be? It's going to be Mike Pence. You're going to see the former vice president of the United States stride into court. He's going to repeat the testimony that he gave in the grand jury, which you can tell is in the indictment in which Trump, uh, he has multiple conversations with Trump telling him he doesn't have the authority. He cannot do that. And he is going to be a blockbuster witness. Whatever you think of Mike Pence, his bearing, his political background, Everything suggests that he is telling the truth in this context, and he would have no reason whatsoever to lie. In fact, it would have been in his political advantage to lie yeah. and to lie to this court. So, including I think his sanctimonious pain that'll just come through. Yes, it'll right, be like right. they're pulling be, teeth on him, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think Mark Meadows is going to be a witness, and that's going to be you know what kind of witness we don't know because um, again, issues of um, self-interest, issues of bias. These are all fair game for the defense. But Mark Meadows is clearly going to be a witness, you know, in all of that. You're going to see um, the White House lawyers. You're going to see Philbin. Yes. Yes. You're going to see um, Jeffrey, Simple not Jeffrey yeah. Clark, but Jeffrey Rosen, who was part yeah. of the conversation about sending these letters out. If you think back to the January 6 hearings, again, who were the star witnesses who kind of really made an impact? You know who else can be a witness? Bill Barr. Bill Barr was a direct party to this. He was telling Trump, this is nonsense. This is crazy. There are no facts here. So you're going to see sort of a... He might relish it, right? Yeah, Yeah, he won't be so reluctant. (laughs) It's going to be like this all-star, you know, trial of formerly, you know, you know, venerated Republican loyalists who are suddenly in court and they're going to have a lot of, I think, gravitas um, to bring to this. Does Trump take the stand? I think it would be insane. I think it would be absolute malpractice. The question is, can Trump be talked out of it? And I, everyone says, oh, no, 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 he's going to want to testify. He really has never wanted to testify. He didn't testify in E. Jean Carroll. He didn't testify, you know, even though he was a target, he could have with the the grand jury. He does not want to testify because he knows somewhere in that addled mind, somewhere in that broken, you know, 
mind of his that he will be destroyed and that he doesn't have an excuse and that politically it is far better for him to take the position I don't even deign to get on the stand to dispute these guys it's all lies 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 so I that's a that's his historical legacy it's not yes. just he loses the trial that's that's who he becomes he can't do it well yeah. Can I go offer, ahead? It's probably yes. right that he won't. We got testify. yeah. We have a betting pool here. You can yeah. We can not we can betting, handicap this one not, too. <laughs> it's friendly, uh, friendly, right. uh, friendly uh, betting pool. Yeah, friendly way. Kibitzing pool. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, uh, I think that um, um, friendly wagering for no stakes. Uh, and yet the highest of stakes. Interstate. Is this, are we interstate? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we are not. We're all in DC. We're all in DC, aren't we today? Okay. Well, I'm in New York wagering. City, man. Oh, you're in Definitely oh, not wagering for Trump stakes. Um, so the, um, the, it's probably right that he doesn't testify, but there is some evidence um, and logic um, that, at least his lawyers and he are going to have to wrestle with. Um, defending the case becomes much, much harder uh, if he does not testify when he's going to put in a def defenses that he relied on his counsel's right. advice. Well, how are you going to prove the reliance? He's going to put believe, in a defense. Yeah. He's going to put in a defense of good faith belief. I believed I won. I may have been wrong, but. Right. Um, uh, that that kind of a belief, because these people told me so. So there's some technical reasons in order for his lawyers to be able to make the arguments to the jury. You know, after the prosecution closes its case, you know this well, Harry. We've both been there. The judge says, "Okay, who's gonna? You know, uh, defense counsel, who's on your witness list? Is your client going to testify? Let me know." Don't decide right now. Let me know. But if he doesn't and they get to the end of the defense's order of proof and they don't have enough evidence to support some of these affirmative defenses, they won't be allowed to argue them to a jury. Right. So, um, you know, and we've all been in that uncomfortable as a defense lawyer. I've been in that uncomfortable situation as a prosecutor. You get to lord it over me. Um but now you do, you know, now you're, you're litigating cases, right? You got to prove your, your, okay. So that's, that's logic. And then if you look at past history, I was surprised given the financial stakes, it was turned out to be a few million dollars. I was surprised that Trump elected to testify in the E. Jean Carroll depositions, right? Um, clearly he made a calculation um, at least to appear for deposition. And he has often done that in other cases. Now, he has more exposure now. His brain is not what it was, even when he did that E. Jean Carroll deposition. Um, case. Yeah. I'll bet you, and it's civil, but I'll bet you that they at least test it. You know, they they do a mock. They see how it goes. They put it on video, they play it back, they do an elaborate preparation before they make their final decisions. I think in the end they won't do it, but boy, pro damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. All right, fair enough. And hey, we could go on for hours and hours, but uh, we're, we're, we're 
tour, you know, running out of of time, I think. Why don't I, I, I'll just serve up um, everyone for a final thought or comment about anything at all, any sundry thing. It doesn't have to be a grand theme. And I'll start with uh, point number one that just occurred to me uh, when, when Jen was talking, and that is Mark Meadows. He's not going to be, you know... He has to be. So it might be a miracle that Terwilliger has um, pulled off his lawyer, but this guy's got to give it all up. And boy, he knows everything. There's no, he can't be hedged. He can't be a little bit. He's getting a great deal and he is going to be an open book. And that, and you know, he's with them all the time. January 6th, he's got everything. <laughs> he is the star witness. He can alone bury him. And, uh, you know, he's been silent till then. That's going to be dramatic, a half day testimony and devastating. That's my final little snippet. Um, Jen, Norm? Well, it struck me that when we started this investigation, the Justice Department was convinced that they had to start from the bottom up. They yeah. had to prosecute all these guys. Well, guess what? None of that is relevant to the Trump trial because they're not going through the connection to the militia. They're not tying Trump to the evidence. That could have gone on forever and they never would have reached Trump. And this was what many of us were concerned about, that they were either intentionally or unintentionally pursuing an investigative strategy that was never going to implicate Trump. Lo and behold, how do we get Jack Smith? Because Donald Trump forced the hand of the attorney exactly. general. He forced Merrick Garland to appoint a special counsel because he decided yep, to run point. for president on the mistaken belief that if he ran for president, somehow he wasn't going to get prosecuted or he would be protected from prosecution. That was his fatal error because very early on, Jack Smith figured out, I don't need all this stuff. In fact, I don't want all this stuff because I have huge proof problems tying the militia to Trump. And I have this First Amendment problem. Forget all that stuff. And he's watching the hearings over the summer and he's seeing how effective these witnesses are. By the way, the January 6th also gave him a sense of how witnesses would appear in public and to the public. And he said, you know what? I don't need any of that crap. I'm never going to get to Trump that way. Here's the fast, easy, clean way to do it. And he said about it and he did it. And we now have the prospect. I think there's no reason why this couldn't come to trial in the first quarter of 2024. We have every reason in the world to think that not only this trial could start, but be completed by, say, the early summer of 2024. And Jack Smith, in doing that, will have contributed more to the defense of democracy. I would say that anybody since Abraham Lincoln, maybe, um, because he's protecting the essence of our democracy, the rule of law. Fantastic point. Norm? Um, I... Uh, was going to note the timing. Um, I want to give um, uh, a, uh, a big um, shout out to um, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, who extraordinarily went on uh, the radio in New York and said, look, for the, in the interest of justice, I'll give up my slot. The Bragg case uh, is um, 
Uh, also, an election interference case, it's kind of the gateway drug for this because you have um, uh, the fabrication of false documents to cover up hush money payments that were intended to avoid another sex scandal in the waning days of an earlier campaign, 2016. So it, that that's an important case. You could get jail time in that case. I've been looking at some of the precedents for similarly situated people. Um, and that leads me to my final reflection, which is how this fits into the overall landscape of the cases out there. Because I think, it, I agree with Jen, I think it is going to go in 2024. I think it will likely be the first case. Chutkin uh, is not going to wait for Eileen Cannon and her procrastinations and dubious. I'm sure Chutkin rolled her eyes. I mean, every decent um, lawyer and judge had to roll their eyes, even the extremely conservative 11th Circuit at Judge Cannon's uh, earlier rulings uh, reversed her twice as she attempted to interfere with the DOJ investigation. So I think um, that case will lag. That's okay. Um, This will really put wind into the sails of the um, other state prosecutions, which are going to lean on the theory of the case, the evidence, you know, the trial is going to be like a dry run for them. That's not just Fannie Willis. It's just coming very shortly. It's going to be the opposite of Jack Smith. Fannie is going to go large. Uh, it's going to um, uh, be, uh, you know, a Georgia Rico conspiracy is going to have, by all indications, many, perhaps over a dozen defendants, including Trump. Um and that's appropriate. There's a wonderful yin and yang with Fani uh, and Jack because he's, uh, for the sake of our democracy, moving quickly. So the American people know who the major party um, representative possibly in the general election of the GOP is. You know, is he a, a convicted democracy felon? Um, but she's going to tell the full story going both deep and wide, albeit as it hits. Georgia, but Georgia was a principal target of Trump. So that's um, important. And it'll help others like um, uh, Michigan AG Dana Nessel, who are proceeding, and there's press reports that other states are looking at it. So having that early trial is going to animate the full scope of Trump uh, accountability. The last thing I'll say in that is remember that there is some peril here because Trump can pardon him his way out of it or if he's elected in 2024 just order DOJ when he takes office to drop the case issue a self-pardon another Republican could pardon DeSantis has said he might so Smith is animating those other cases as a way of creating insurance for accountability because they can't be pardoned or ordered dropped by Trump so you know we have to look at the Smith case not just as thanks, Alvin Bragg, not just because Bragg is also an election interference gateway drug, but in the larger scheme of things, it is the tentpole. There you go. All right. So it's we have such an entire landscape and it is broad. Let me just say, you know, though it's a happenstance that we lawyers, many of us have have become the kind of commentators to try to translate these things on TV. One of the downsides, a couple downsides, is first we're um, uh, kind of um, jammed into these 
90 second observations. And the second is the way things work. You have uh, different teams who don't get to meet uh, much. Uh, they're in MSNBC or CNN, and you don't have all-star um, uh, contests except here. So it's, I think, a great, um, it's, a, it's really fun and a privilege for me, and I, and I think a real advantage that we can get together as friends, really dig into stuff, and have together um, folks who are very good at kind of uh, talking with each other in a dynamic way and that you don't get to see on TV. So hooray for this uh, episode. So, so much more to come. And uh, until then, talk to you later.